the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. It's Lifeline with Craig Roberts. He's the host of Northern California's longest-running conservative talk show. He's a man with a message, a conservative with compassion. He's Lifeline's own Craig Roberts. And he's here to say good afternoon. Welcome. It is a Tuesday. It is Election Day around the state of California. And uh, trust as we have now uh, two hours and 55 minutes to go before polls close across the state. If you haven't already remotely cast your ballot through absentee ballot or um, digital balloting is being done in uh, some communities that go back, my goodness, almost a month now, then uh, now is your chance to exercise your right and responsibility as a citizen and vote. Remember, this is representative government. That means we represent ourselves. And so if you don't like the government you end up with and you don't vote, I guess you get the government you deserve, don't you? We're going to talk more about the election coming up later on tonight. Brian Johnson is going to join us. We are, as we say, moving into uh, a critical election here in the midterms with a number of seats up for grabs across the state of California, along with the primary election for the gubernatorial race. We'll talk more about that and uh, give you some insights onto the propositions or into the propositions as well. A lot of folks I know have been confused about which way to go on that. We'll offer you some some ideas. So if you are kind of on the edge of some of the candidates or the issues and not quite settled in how you're going to vote, then stay with us coming up at 5.30. We'll get into some specifics, make a few recommendations for you, and hopefully help you out a bit. As we lead off the program tonight, one of the big top stories that we've seen dominating the news over the last couple of days has been the decision handed down by the U.S. Supreme Court ruling in favor of a Colorado baker who refused to make a wedding cake for a gay couple. Mark Mayfield has more details on this story. Kristen Wagner for the Alliance for Defending Freedom represented Baker Jack Phillips before the Supreme Court. She said the justices made the right call, saying the Colorado Civil Rights Commission was very biased against her client's religious beliefs. This process was openly hostile to Jack because of his religious viewpoint, and that in and of itself was enough to render it unconstitutional under the Free Exercise Clause. In a 7-2 ruling, the Supreme Court determined the process in which the commission made their decision against the baker was biased and unfair. However, the ruling did not say that business owners can refuse service to anyone simply due to their sexual preference. Mark Mayfield, NBC News Radio. In that 7-2 ruling, Justices Ginsburg and uh, Sotomayor were on the descending side of the opinion. Let's talk a bit about the implications of this decision by the court. We're joined now by Kate Anderson, legal counsel with the Alliance Defending Freedom, key member of the Center for Conscience Initiatives. And Kate, thank you so much for being with us today. Give us first, if you would, a little bit more of an in-depth look at exactly what the implications are of the high court's ruling. 
Well, this was a significant win for religious freedom. The court in this 7-2 decision said clearly that the government was wrong to punish Jack for simply living out his religious beliefs. Jack serves all customers. He just can't create all messages, which is something that should be understandable to people on both sides of this issue. It certainly was to this court, and they were clear that the government in Colorado and elsewhere has to stop discriminating against people of faith. In the um, majority opinion on this, they indicated they were condemning, quote, clear and impermissible hostility towards sincere religious beliefs, close quote. What exactly did the high court mean by that, do you think? What we saw in Colorado was statement after statement from the commission that was hostile to Jack's religious belief. He believes, as millions in this country do, that marriage is between one man and one woman. Uh, Yet the commission compared that to views promoting slavery, to those that perpetuated the Holocaust, to other uh, heinous crimes that have happened in our history, uh, which could not be farther from the truth. Jack serves everyone. In fact, the two gentlemen that came into his shop that day, he offered to sell them anything in his shop or create them a custom cake. He just could not create a custom wedding cake celebrating a religious event uh, that he did not believe in because of the message that cake conveyed. To your knowledge, was his the only bakery in that community? Not at all. Uh, There are many, many bakeries in that community. So the notion of the individuals that requested the cake that were denied it uh, by the owner of the store could have had the option to simply vote with their feet and take their business elsewhere. Absolutely, which is exactly what they did. Um, But in the end, there was a complaint filed that eventually brought in the Colorado Civil Rights Commission. And largely, as I understand, in the case before the Supreme Court, it was not necessarily the the behavior of the uh, complainant as much as it was the response by the Colorado Civil Rights Commission that seemed to um, sort of create the biggest ire with the majority opinion. Certainly. What we saw was Colorado bullying and trying to banish an individual from the marketplace simply because he was living out his religious beliefs. And the hostility that the court saw was twofold. One was in the statements that that I spoke about earlier that were made directly to Jack and talking about his religious beliefs. And the other was the fact that the commission treated Jack's case differently than other cases that were very similar. The commission was looking at complaints Uh, related to three bakeries that decided to decline a message that was critical of same-sex marriage. And in that case, the commission said it was fine to decline critical messages related to same-sex marriage, but it was not okay to decline a message that celebrated, even though in both cases all of the bakeries served everyone and just made a decision about the message that was being asked to create. One of the phrases that's been brought up and certainly was, was frequently used during the the case that was presented before the high court was this question of religious neutrality, that in a sense, the state of Colorado's Civil Rights Commission failed to operate um, in an environment that protected this notion of religious neutrality. What exactly does that mean? Well, the concern is that the state of Colorado is treating people of faith differently and discriminating against them in particular uh, because of their religious belief. This principle of neutrality is important for everyone on both sides of this issue. Uh, We wouldn't want to live in a country that required a lesbian cake designer to create a cake that criticized same-sex marriage. Similarly, we don't want to live in a country where Jack's required to create a message on a cake that violates his beliefs. 
Now, on that basis, I'm wondering, because there has been uh, some observation that while this decision by the high court speaks specifically to this case, uh, it, it is a very narrow decision. Is that necessarily true? Does this potentially open up a Pandora's box in the sense that with the, the decision handed down, could, for example, a, I don't know, a Muslim baker refuse to serve a Jewish client? What the court just said was that people like Jack, people of faith, who serve all customers that make decisions about the messages they create based on their religious freedom, are able to make those decisions. They, the court recognized that there's a difference, and there is, between somebody who won't serve an entire class of people simply because they don't like them. That's not at all what's happening here. What's happening here is somebody respectfully serving everyone from all walks of life, but having to make decisions about the messages that he can create because of his religious So in this case, then, narrowly defined is not a question of the problem being related to the people not being served. It's the message that seemed to be in question. Absolutely. And that was of deep concern to the court. One of the other observations made was that there's, quote, no general constitutional exemption from civil rights laws just because a person has religious objections. And so uh, is, is this going to be a case where in the future may may once again find itself before the Supreme Court without really clearly defining exactly the breadth and depth or how broad or narrow this decision may be in other cases? Because I can instantly see people trying to take advantage of this. Well, I think we'll always see cases continuing to test these principles of free speech and free exercise before the court. And certainly there are other cases coming up through the court that are going to bring very similar questions to the court. But I think what we saw Justice Kennedy saying and the justices that joined him is that on the same-sex marriage issue, people need to respect beliefs on both sides, that we can live together in a pluralistic society without government hostility. And again, the option always is, as in this case here or any other, if if you don't like it, vote with your feet. Or if you want to protest, you can certainly, I guess, go draw up a placard and go stand out in front of uh, uh, Jack Phillips Bakery and let your opinion be heard. (laughs) Certainly you can. Free speech is an important principle in this country. In the the dissenting opinion uh, written by Ginsburg and Sotomayor, anything stand out? I think there was just disagreement um, over some of these issues and uh, concerns, I guess, on... um, I just think there was a lack of seeing what the other justices saw, that this is not somebody who is discriminating against an entire class of people in any fashion. Jack serves everyone. Uh, I said that several times, but it's an important point to to understand. Um, But he does. He serves people from all walks of life. uh, And the principle that's being upheld by the majority court here... Uh, is that everyone should be free to live under the government and to live out their beliefs without fear that the government's going to pick and choose between beliefs and punish some simply for living their faith. Kate Anderson is legal counsel with the Alliance Defending Freedom. Kate, thanks so much for your time today. More information on the web at adflegal.org. 515, let's get a look at traffic. We'll head over to the KFAX Traffic Center. And on this Tuesday, say good afternoon to Michael Bennett. Hey, Michael. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. The government just doesn't seem to be learning the lesson that you have to apply the same standard and the government cannot put its thumb on the scale because it supports one particular ideology over another. It can't bully people. Welcome back to the program. We are indeed talking in this segment of the program about the decision handed down in the case of the Colorado Civil Rights Commission against a baker in 
the state of Colorado, of course, and this decision in the uh, Masterpiece Cake Shop versus Colorado Civil Rights Commission on a 7-2 to two vote with Justices Ginsburg and Sotomayor on the dissenting side essentially has said that uh, the sort of religious hostility that seems to be in play here is not constitutionally allowable. The question, I guess, comes down to this for people of faith, and that is in, in this, this very tricky arena of protecting our rights, defending our rights, standing up for First Amendment rights, um, how do we do the delicate balance between that, what seems to be at a level of, what should we call it, a, a priority to fend off attacks, and the need to do so in a fashion that is also sensitive enough that we continue to um, demonstrate love and compassion and propagate the gospel in the process. Dr. Alex McFarland joins us now, religion and culture expert. He is Director of Christian Worldview and Apologetics at the Christian Worldview Center of North Greenville University. Dr. McFarland, always a delight to have you with us, certainly um, in the sense of a um, an item on the plus column for people of faith. Uh, the decision handed down uh, is, a, is a good one. However, uh, it, it does raise questions as to whether or not this might be abused by people later on that now determine, oh, I don't like people of uh, Christian faith, and I happen to be Muslim or a Buddhist or whatever, and so I'm going to use my faith as a means or an excuse for um, acting in a uh, discriminatory fashion. Ultimately, from a Christian viewpoint, how should we be acting and responding in these kinds of circumstances? Well, great question, and thank you for having me back on. It's always an honor to be on. Um, you know, I was pleased with the decision on um, Monday, June 4th, as many, many, maybe all Christians were, but not for the reason that you might think, uh, because the decision really is less about religion and more about natural law. Um, natural law being not an ideology that, in, in the sound clip you played, it says that they tip the scales and put their thumb on the scales in favor of a certain ideology. Natural law is the moral awareness that we all have, although here in American life in recent years it's been um, ignored, if not suppressed and obscured, but uh, what the decisions of the court or any court, if it's a, a just decision, a legitimate decision, it should be a decision in favor of natural law. The Founding Fathers, like Alexander Hamilton and Thomas Jefferson, would have seen natural law as, as the objective moral truth that we all know about and that form the basis of our rights. So really, believe it or not, the decision, while it may not have been made in the minds of the jurists in, in the scope of natural law or moral truth, it really is not about religion, it's about morality. And that, that really is, is blind justice. In other words, it's not that they were favoring Christianity. We all have, as the founders would say, the inalienable right, the, the right that no government can legitimately take away. Governments can definitely take away our rights, they just can't do it legitimately. Uh, and the right of conscience and freedom of expression, uh, as long as it doesn't undermine or take away anyone else's immutable rights and for for uh, the the gay couple to have to go buy a cake somewhere else 
they might say that's an inconvenience, but they could never say that an immutable right was taken away. It wasn't. They could still go buy a cake, and the baker, uh, he doesn't have to violate his conscience by being forced or coerced to make a cake. So nobody's rights, nobody's natural rights were taken away or undermined here. So I'm glad for the decision, although I'm quite certain that justices probably didn't arrive at it the way that our founding fathers would. Well, and, and as I voiced earlier with the previous guest, I mean, uh, from the standpoint of uh, being able to protest, you always have the right to walk or, or show your protest by uh, by walking out, you know, protest by your feet, as the saying goes. Um, mm-hmm. the, the, the concern I think I have in this case is that there is a narrow of enough definition handed down by the uh, majority vote that I wonder if this thing could suddenly then be turned around and all of a sudden, for example, a racist is, is using this to now claim, well, I don't want to serve certain people uh, because their particular religious beliefs or faith indicate X, Y, Z. Do you see that at all as a risk in this case? Uh, I think it's a risk in this climate because people are so um, ignorant, and and I'm not using the word ignorant in a sarcastic or pejorative sense, but people are so ignorant of the difference between uh, truth versus opinion, uh, conviction versus preference, objectivity versus just subjective bias. Uh, I think there's definitely a risk that this decision could be misused or misconstrued, but but really, uh, part of the genius of America, and part of the genius of America was when we have an agreed-upon moral playing field, uh, everyone has rights and liberties uh, within the context of moral responsibility. Uh, nobody can claim special rights but at the same time, nobody should give up inherent rights or immutable rights. And so uh, it's a good decision. My prayer is, and I'm, I'm writing a book about this, Craig. Since you and I last talked, I, I've started a book. I've got to finish it uh, by the end of July, but a book about natural law. And uh, the, the book is going to be basically a, about America's uh, fatal flaw, that we're undermining the health and longevity of the Constitution if we don't agree upon moral truth. Now, believe me, I'm keenly aware that a lot of people will say, well, you're imposing your religion. No, the idea that there are some objective moral truths that nobody invented, nobody made them up, these are things we inherently know. Um, For instance, uh, a, a Muslim baker should not be forced to make a cake that says uh, Allah doesn't exist and Muhammad is a fraud. He should be able to recuse himself and say, you know what, I, you can go buy that cake somewhere else, but I'm not going to make that. So, so that in, in using your example, if, if a Christian uh, approaches a Muslim baker and says, I, I want you to bake a cake for me, and on the cake and icing I want you to write, uh, Jesus Christ is the one true Lord and Savior, in your opinion, should that Muslim breaker have the right to deny serving them or baking that cake? Absolutely, absolutely. And that's um, ba- and that's based well, on the notion that they have they they can take their business elsewhere. You can go to another bakery. Exactly, exactly. And and while I do believe that Jesus is the one and only Savior, and I would be happy to purchase a cake with that inscription, 
I understand where a Muslim would uh, probably say, you know what, I'm not going to bake that cake. Uh, you can you can buy that somewhere else. Just as I support um, the the baker's right to refuse to do the catering for a gay wedding, uh, I would also support the Muslim baker's right to refuse to make a cake for a Protestant church's vacation Bible school. Or or let's say we, let's say we were doing one of our T and G conferences and we were specializing on a Christian response to Islam and the uh, Islamic baker says, you know what, I'm not going to cater that. I would say, okay, I understand why you're not going to do it. Um, I, I don't feel like I should twist uh, anyone's arm to force them to support uh, key Christian doctrines that go beyond uh, just natural moral uh, truth. Uh, but at the same time, I don't want to have to give up my right to act on my convictions either when it comes to the specifics. And this, you know, at the end of the day, this uh, this used to be part of polite society, where if we uh, we found ourselves in an impasse and there was a difference of opinion, we would agree to disagree, um, go our separate ways, and explore other alternatives. Uh, clearly, that wasn't the case here, at least insofar as the handling of this case by the Colorado Civil Rights Commission, and uh, you know, the 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 broader issue here of. Um, condemning what, as the high court suggested, was, quote, clear and impermissible hostility towards sincere religious beliefs um, is is something that I think we need to be mindful of, again, in the bigger context of understanding that we can all agree to disagree, and in the case of the individuals that wanted the cake baked, they could easily say, well, uh, if you don't want to bake the cake for us, that's fine, uh, because we, now we don't want you to bake the cake for us. We're going to take our business elsewhere. They've always got a right to do that, and as I said to my previous guest, and if they want to go uh, get together a protest out in, in front, I, I guess they, they've got a right to do that, too. Exactly. You know, Alexander Hamilton, who um, was one of the writers of the Federalist Papers, he talks about natural law uh, as an immutable, that is, unchangeable, indispensably obligatory on all mankind moral awareness. Uh, And Hamilton uh, said no human laws are of any validity if they're contrary to the natural law or the moral law. And what so many people don't realize, Craig, is that the First Amendment, uh, in saying that, that the government will not uh, establish a religion nor prohibit the free exercise thereof, people think nowadays, even educators, academics, and some uh, judges believe that if you're supporting the, the moral truth on which our civil society rests, they think that you've established religion. But I've said it on the show, and I'll say it many times, uh, morality and religion are two different things. The recognition of morality does not violate the Establishment Clause of the First Amendment. Well, and one thing that and, we've always yeah. done in this country and society historically is that we have agreed to get along. We have recognized the fact that in the the pluralistic form in which we, uh, as Protestants, hopefully respect Catholics, and Catholics respect people of the Jewish faith and so on, uh, that we've been able to find kind of that harmoni- harmonious note uh, unfortunately, in this case, that didn't happen. And uh, now it'll be interesting to see moving forward whether or not anybody tries to take advantage of this ruling and to turn it into something that the high court never intended. Dr. Alex McFarland, 
religion and culture expert, again, with uh, North Greenville University. We appreciate always, Alex, your time and your insights. 532. We're a little late. Let's get caught up on uh, some traffic here, shall we? And on this Tuesday election night, here is Michael Bennett in the KFAX Traffic Center. Michael? And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. All right, we are back. It is 5.35 on the clock, and that means you've got exactly two hours and 25 minutes till the polls close here in California. This, of course, is a primary election, and with California's controversial so-called ranked choice voting, uh, it's a critical one. Uh, it's critical because traditionally people think, well, uh, at the end of the day, if I sit out the primary, no big deal. I kind of let the people more plugged in. We'll decide who's going to be the leading candidate, the top choice on the Republican Party, the top choice in the Democrat Party, and then come November, I'll step into the ballot box and cast my vote for the candidate of my choice based on political affiliation. Wait a minute, not so fast, because California has ranked choice voting, which means today we're not voting for your party's top guy or gal. We're voting for the top two guys or gals, irrespective of party. So what does that mean? That means that there is a likelihood in a state like California that come November, your top choice for the governor, the top two vote-getters, could very well likely be two Democrats. Doesn't leave you many choices, does it? All right, let's talk about some of the candidates and what's going on in this critical race. We're joined by Brian Johnston, Western Regional Director with the National Right to Life Committee. Brian, as always, great to have you with us. The clock, of course, is ticking. This is a critical election, as I point out. That's right, Craig, and thank you. You summarized it very well, and I think there needs to be an understanding. The nature of our electoral system has changed dramatically, and it's because of the Democrat Party, and you did you did touch on the fact that this is likely, if it goes, unfortunately, the way they want, this could well end up with two Democrats in the fall and no other choices for the Republicans in the fall when it comes to governor or any of these statewide races. But there's another change as well I want to tell folks as they're driving. California has also adopted, because of the Democratic Party, same-day voting. What that means is you're still supposed to uh, register to vote 15 days before the election. But the state of California is altering that, has joined 14 other states that are now allowing you to walk in, you're not registered, Gosh, I forgot to register, but you can walk in and register on Election Day and then cast what's known as a provisional ballot, and then your vote will count after that registration goes through. And so this same-day voting, of course, is right for misuse. We're not saying people are going to do it, but I want to say this. If other folks are doing it and you're not registered today, then you should do it. You need to to vote. You need to participate in the democratic process, even if it's tough at times. So same-day voting is allowed in California. If you need to, you can go to the Secretary of State's website, SOS, Secretary of State, sos.ca.gov. It's explained there. There's uh, six counties that are intensively doing it throughout the county. But apparently, this is legal in every county. Depending on your county, you may need to go to the voter, uh, to the, the county's uh, registrar office. But some counties, like uh, San Mateo, 
they have offices throughout the county where you can walk in and do this. So same-day voting is also now legal in California, as well as, as you pointed out, Greg, the phenomenon of the top two primary. So it's a dramatic change for California, and we've got to put our hands around it and push forward to keep to keep our voice active in this democracy. Absolutely so, because, again, there are some misunderstandings about the changes in the way California participates in the primaries, and um, and as a result, folks may not find the choices at the ballot box come the general election in November, as they might traditionally, historically, have, uh, have run into. Let's talk about that for a minute. There are a number of key races around the state. We have propositions to vote to, uh, vote on. Mm-hmm. We also have not only um, a hotly contested Senate seat, uh, currently held by that of longtime incumbent Diane Feinstein, but a big gubernatorial race as well. Give us some details on that. Yes, it's, uh, it's pretty big. And, uh, again, I'm not going to be mean about this, but you need to understand that if in olden times, whoever was the best talker, whoever could tell you what you wanted to hear, that was the person you wanted to go with. I mean, that's historically how, how we've, we've patterned our, our process. We want to go, that person says things I like. Unfortunately, what's happened in this cycle, and, and it's not me, I'm not saying this, this is now printed in the state's fair political practice uh, committee's reports. Now it's in excess of $27 million, $27 million spent on television, radio, print ads that have come into your mailbox, spent by billionaires, the lead of which is Mayor Bloomberg. But they're all very wealthy billionaires who want to make sure in the top two is Mr. Villaraigosa, who is lagging. And then, of course, Gavin Newsom. They're letting him be presumed as the lead. But how are they spending that money? They're spending that money by telling conservatives, no, 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 don't go with Don Cox, even though he is conservative, even though he's endorsed by by the president. No, 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 there's a much more conservative guy who speaks what you want to hear very, very well. And they have been promoting that candidate, as you pointed out, and, and it's very important for folks to understand, that $27 million is designed to prevent John Cox from being the number two. Well, and maybe even more accurate, it is designed to make sure that California has only a choice of one Democrat or another, both of whom um, have strong ties toward promoting the the Democrat Party in California's progressive agenda. That's right. And so this is a very, very insidious tool this new method of electing candidates in our primaries. And it, it sounds counterintuitive, but you want to, just as these, these billionaires, by the way, Mr. Bloomberg, uh, he knows math. This is out-of-state money is what you're telling me. Yeah, it's out-of-state. No, th- three of the billionaires are Californians. Mr. Bloomberg is certainly not, but he is one of the wealthiest men in the world, and he has an agenda. And it's very clear that he understands to steal conservative votes, somehow you've got to promote a, quote, more conservative candidate so that those votes will not go with the leading conservative. It will draw votes away. Again, this is like a chess game. It's really it's kind of simple if you think about it. It's just math. They don't want the number two person to be a conservative Republican, much less any kind of Republican. And if they can split conservatives 
then they've accomplished that. And literally on the disclaimers, and I've sent them around to people, you can see them online, they literally say they're doing it on behalf of Villaraigosa, even though they're promoting a conservative and, and attacking John Cox as a liberal. <laughs> they, they're doing it. Promote you know, what's amazing so, about this is that, uh, you know, it, it, at least because of the election law that requires uh, full disclosure, that that information, albeit in fine print, has to be made available to the public. The sad thing is that most people are busy and don't have time to read the fine print and therefore see the headlines, see the big bold type, and uh, don't recognize that what the bold type giveth, the small type taketh away. And that, indeed, uh, it can be very problematic to people that are trying to just kind of vote based on, um, you know, top of mind information. You got to dig deeper when it comes to elections these days. And if you fail to do so, uh, you could wind up thinking that you're going to the ballot box and, and exercising your free will as an active participant in democracy and find out that what you thought you were getting, where you thought you were placing your vote is not at all where your choice winds up. And that becomes extremely problematic. I want to mention, by the way, as we are approaching the polls closing here in just about uh, two hours and 15 minutes at 8 o'clock in California, that you can get information at electionforum.com if you're a little lost on some of the issues or candidates that will help guide you in the right direction. That's electionforum.com. Forum.com. It's a good conservative resource, pro-life resource. So if you want to know who are the candidates, where do they stand, give you some direction on the statewide measures as well as statewide candidates. Again, some critical offices here. Uh, we know certainly the big ones, the gubernatorial race, certainly the Senate race for uh, Diane Feinstein, who, um, interestingly enough, if she gets reelected, will be in office serving California until the age of 90. Information again at electionforum.com. That's electionforum.com. Aside from the gubernatorial race, Brian, any major pro-life issues that we need to be thinking about as we head into the ballot box here? Well, Craig, I'm very pleased that you mentioned Craig Hughes' election forum. I, I appreciate Craig Hughes very much. And I want to encourage people to go there to the election forum and to Greg Craig Huey's um, uh, recommendations. Now, it's no secret, you and I, my folio is the right to life. Um, and thankfully, Craig weighs it very heavily. Uh, in some cases where there hasn't been clarity, then we'll go silent because we don't want to risk promoting someone who's not pro-life and then have people come back and say, no, he wasn't pro-life. But I, I'm going to, at this point, step out and, and just be a commentator outside of, of my right-to-life rule. And if we could, we'll just go through these races, and I'll talk about what Craig has re- recommended, if that's okay. Um, obviously, he's gone with John Cox, no secret. We have endorsed John Cox, as have has, uh, the president and many others who are concerned about ultimate victory in California. For Lieutenant Governor David Hernandez, he's a great guy. He's run for Lieutenant Governor many times. And uh, I've met him many times, a great, a great guy, so David Hernandez. Uh, Secretary of State is Mark Muser, and Mark is from the Bay Area. I think he went to Stanford. I've only heard good things about Mark Muser, and it's very important. He has promised, and we started off your program, Craig, talking about how the Democrat Party, unfortunately, has abused the electoral system. Uh, Mark has promised to clean the rules. Our new president has asked that every state do this. California, as you know, 
is invoking resistance at every turn, and especially in electoral reform, Mark Muser, as Secretary of State, is going to get all those dead folks off the rolls. He's going to make sure that people are, in fact, citizens before they register. That would be nice. Uh, and a lot of the things that are required in electoral reform for state controller Konstantinos Roditis, solid, conservative, traditional value guy, and treasurer uh, Jack Guerrero. Uh, Attorney General Steve Bailey, Stephen Bailey, and um, it's going to be, all of these races will be tough and tough in the fall as well. For insurance commissioner, he recommends Stephen Poisoner. Steve Poisoner has run in the past. He is Republican. Excuse me, that he's registered as independent now, but he is an insurance commissioner, and he really wants to see responsible insurance reform, not see it abused as it has been. Uh, Superintendent of Public Instruction, Marshall Tuck. Marshall Tuck, even though he's a registered Democrat, has a little more traditional values under his belt. And if there's any place that needs uh, reform, it's in uh, public instruction. So that's kind of the top of the ticket there going through. Oh, and there's the U.S. Senate. Uh, we have at California Pro-Life, and I see that that uh, Craig has as well, he's um, endorsed Paul Taylor. And so I have talked to a couple of the other people. I think Tom Paulser is a good guy. One of the challenges, though, is we have to keep our votes lined up. We don't want to split up. And so when there's a lot of good guys, our girls, our gals, running for a, an office, if you split the good votes, you almost assure that there won't be any good people elected now. That's the tragedy. And so you do have to pick those who, who, are, who are best suited and best positioned, as well as having the best policies. Um, you want to hit the propositions? Let's hit the propositions. Yes. So we got a lot of propositions on the ballot, and I look at what Craig has. I like, again, I'm speaking as an individual here. Um, Craig has a view of government, and I think it's the view that that you also share, Craig, but I think it's what a lot of people who have thought about government um, understand is that you don't want a massive government. And if that's the first time you've ever heard that, I encourage you, to read the founders and to read what allowed the Constitution to come into place. And that was a very important set of documents published for all thinking Americans at the time. The Federalist Papers, which outlined why you want to restrict an unlimited government and why you want to have as many restrictions as reasonably possible on that government and limit what it can and should do. Our founders understood that government will grow as much as it possibly can by its nature. And they had read Hobbes' Leviathan. They had read uh, many of the uh, British precursors, and, and there's, a, there's a whole history there. But I see that, that Craig kind of agrees with me. A lot of these propositions will expand government, and it just gives them more money to spend, and they end up spending it irresponsibly, and you can't get it back. So Prop 68... Is, uh, it's a bond funding parks, natural resources, all climate adaptation, water quality, wonderful, wonderful stuff. Uh, Craig rec- recommends a no, and I, in principle, would as well, because it's those things sound great, but then in principle, you're not the person that's going to be spending it, and the people who do spend it, it's not their money. And they don't care if they spend it irresponsibly. Well, and people need to be mindful, too. Whenever you see the word bond in any ballot proposition. I want you to think of another word, bondage. 
And the reason being is because it's a bond measure. That means you're granting, in the case of Prop 68, the state of California the right to issue $4.1 million in bonds. What does that mean? That means you're giving the state the right to go out and spend that money on credit. And you know what credit means? That means when you take out credit... The person that's giving you the money, the person that's loaning you the money, expects it back with interest. And so a $4 billion bond measure equates to about $6 billion in cost to the taxpayer. We're better off, quite frankly, increasing taxes. I'm not advocating that, but increasing a tax will be better to raise the money than going out and buying um, uh, or or selling bonds, rather, and then having to pay out any kind of an obligation to that degree. Yes, and the thing about taxes, and it's what our founder said, it's people vote on it, representatives vote. And then you can hold them accountable. And we're about to see that with the gas tax. It's going to be on the fall ballot. And so this is important that taxation is a legitimate role of government, but it needs to be controlled responsibly, and it's ultimately our government. And so by having, as you, as you said, uh, Craig, we, we have the ability now, if, if representatives pass those taxes, now we can, we can hold them accountable. Once the bond is passed, there's nothing you can do. So uh, Prop 69 uh, requires certain new transportation revenues be used for transportation purposes only. And um, it's, uh, I have mixed feelings about that because it is delineating how those revenues, they should be spent on transit. It's very common in Sacramento and in Washington. We're about to hear, today it was announced, that both Medicare and Social Security are going to be going bankrupt in the next 10 years. So um, once you have these giant, giant programs, uh, they start spending them on other things as well. So this says that transpo, transportation revenues used only for transportation. Um, Craig has suggested no. I personally voted yes on that only because it was finally delimiting that, hey, if it's transportation money, you better use it for transportation purposes, because usually what they'll do is they'll go to the deepest pockets, and they'll start borrowing from that and considering it part of the general fund. So, um, but that's, it, it does have great concern for me. So that's Proposition 69, and again, Craig recommends a no. I'm not going to be passionate about a yes, I'll tell you that. And by the way, the rule of thumb on any vote, if you don't really know, Vote no, or at least skip it, because that uh, you're you're avoiding bigger problems that you don't want to find later. Uh, Proposition seventy requires a legislative supermajority vote approving use of cap and trade reserve fund. So that means you need a two thirds vote of the legislature uh, to use the cap and trade. And by the way, the cap and trade is code for the whole global warming taxation scheme. And it says you have to have two-thirds vote to spend that money. Well, to be honest, right now, because of the makeup, that isn't going to change things in California because the Democrats essentially have a two-thirds vote. So um, it's, that's a lot of money. The cap-and-trade taxation is, is billions. And, uh, again, it's not something that I personally uh, believe in. So, that, again, that requires two-thirds, so at least there's some limit put on that. But we really don't want to have those types of bonds out there in the first place. So uh, Craig has, has suggested no. And I said, if you look at that, and if you think that you want to put that, that two-thirds limit on it, um, 
fine, but if you don't know exactly what you're going to do, I suggest a no, like Craig. Um, the next one, he suggests a yes, Proposition 71. It sets a date effective for ballot measures. So if a ballot measure passes, historically, uh, it, gets, it gets sued right away and prevented from going into action. Uh, and the reason that Craig is supporting that is because uh, a lot of ballot measures are put on by the voters. And then the bureaucracy wants to slow it down. This would require that once it's passed, it would go into effect within 10 days. And so this is arguably a way to speed up the process if it's a good ballot measure. I've actually been in a situation, though, where I've seen bad ballot measures. And 10 days, it's pretty hard to get the legal team together because that's a lot of resources. So I have mixed feelings about that personally, but that's what Prop 71 does. It, it says ballot measures go into effect 10 days after passage. And Craig Huey suggests a yes vote. Um, I have mixed feelings because it kind of depends on what the ballot measure is. You know, it's, it's which, which end of the stick are you holding on that particular one? Prop 72, uh, it permits the legislature to exclude newly constructed rain capture systems from property tax assessment requirements. And um, that sounds a little bit complicated, but uh, it has to do with your tax assessment. And uh, Craig re- recommends a yes vote because basically it would lower, in principle, your taxation. Another good thing, I won't exhaust them, but what I like, uh, there's another in the Bay Area, by the way, the Values Advocacy Council. Craig, if you're familiar with VAC oh, yes. in San Jose, I really recommend those folks. They have a website. And they have for for um, Santa Clara County some great analysis there. I really appreciate the folks at BAC. Um, with Craig Huey, he actually goes through every county, and he pays particular attention to judges. And I'm very pleased that he does that because judges ultimately sometimes are um, the ultimate designers of these things. And so I recommend if you want to know locally on your local ballot, you have some judges up. Do go ahead and, and go to Craig Huey's website and county by county. You can check that out, and he talks about those that he has information. It's very hard sometimes. I've tried. It's very hard to get judges to tell you where they're at, and Craig has ways. But even then, he's had, he admits he has to do some guesswork and suggest, well, this person is the lesser of two evils. So there's... Um, there's a lot of murkiness sometimes. Uh, politics is messy at times. No doubt about it. But at least uh, we've got a little bit of a, a resource available to help make the decision-making process easier. Again, that website that Brian referred to was electionforum.com. That's electionforum.com. There's one measure that's not a statewide, it's a local one, that I want to touch on before we wrap up the hour, and that is Regional Measure 3. This is what's called Punish the Poor People and let them pay for everybody else's road work. (laughs) Measure three would increase tolls on every bridge in the Bay Area, except, of course, the Golden Gate. They're their own district. And it would increase tolls $3 over the next several years to pay for transportation improvements. That means for the people that have to go across the bridges every day to get to and from work, they will be spending hundreds of dollars more every year out of their family budget. And if this was raising money to cross the bridge to improve the bridge, to rebuild the bridge, to paint the bridge, makes sense. 
why we think that the people who happen to live on one side of the bay and work on the other ought to be penalized for it, take money out of their family's pocket in order to pay for a toll road somewhere else, construction of a brand new road 50 miles away. Does that make any sense? Absolutely not. So I am personally recommending uh, to those who believe in fairness and not strangling the poor budgets of people that commute the bridge every day to vote no on Regional Measure 3. And uh, in doing that, let's uh, if we're going to increase money, raise money in order to improve Bay Area transportation, let's make sure that everybody participates. How about some fees for all the bike riders out there? Hmm, think about that. Information again on the web at electionforum.com. That's electionforum.com, Regional Measure 3, recommending a no vote. Six o'clock as we thank Brian Johnston for being with us. We've got more to come, but right now we need to pause and get you updated on road conditions on this election night. Two hours to go before the polls close. Details right now on that ride with Michael Bennett in the KFAX Traffic Center. Michael? Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.